everyone. Welcome to Real World Parenting, tips and scripts for parents on roads less traveled. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson, a child and family psychologist, and I'm glad you're here. As you settle in to listen, let me reassure you that you are in the right place. If you're a loving parent looking for answers and encouragement, and maybe even a chuckle amidst hard things. If you're a loving parent who's raising a child on a journey different from your own as a child, and are seeking a compass as you navigate uncharted waters. This is the place for you if you get the theory of parenting advice you keep hearing, but for the love of chocolate and curry and all other nearly perfect things, that theory never quite works as planned with your actual children. Finally, you are in exactly the right place if you're a therapist or clinician who works with kids, teens, and families. My intention is that these episodes will deepen your work and change lives. So in this intro, I get two to three minutes here to boil down 30 years of work in my psychology offices and my experience as a mom in the trenches and let you know what I'll offer with this podcast. I almost called it Lessons from Our Living Rooms or Couch Conversations because my offerings will be things I have learned and keep learning from the vantage point of both my living room couch and my therapy office couch. The aim of this podcast is to offer hope, support, wisdom, and experience in community, to provide clinicians a window into what our recommendations actually mean for real families in real life. We will talk all things kid and teen related and shine a spotlight on families navigating identities related to race, gender, and adoption. We will explore common child and adolescent mental health and wellness related topics. The hope is to leave you with a greater understanding of your child's needs and a, you got this, energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions including, well, what do I say when? And well, what do I do when? So that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa or lace up some shoes or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Real World Parenting. I am really glad you're here. It's an honor today for me to welcome Tony Hines, who is well known in the world of adoption and has written a book called The Son with Two Moms. And he is a training specialist at CASE, uh, which does a ton of work for adoptees and adoptive families. And so um, it is a pleasure for me to welcome you today, Tony, to continue to learn um, as a member of the adoption triad and, and trying to really, really stay in conversation and center folks who've had firsthand experience. So welcome. Thank you, Laura. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here today. Yeah. Um, yeah, when you and I connected, we just thought, you know, there's, there, there are lots of important conversations to be had in the world of adoption for adoptive families. Um, and we connected a little bit around uh, talking about families or adoptees being raised in LGBTQ plus homes. So, Tell me a little bit, both say whatever you'd like to about your professional background and, and the personal pieces that bring you to be in the chair right now. Yeah, no, thanks for that question. So I am an interracial adoptee, adopted from DC early to mid nineties. 
I have, as it's mentioned in the title of my book, two moms, two white moms who happen to be lesbian moms as well. And so I was adopted and it was pretty normal in terms of the process that we went through, that my moms went through in that adoption. And after the adoption was granted, about three months later, the adoption was overturned by a panel of judges who said that a white same-sex-headed household was not the right household to raise a black child in. It was at that particular time that my moms found out that my adoption had been appealed, challenged by members of my birth family who were told by lots of different people, but also by our own social worker, actually, that this was not the right household to raise me in and that this is the way that you should file an appeal of that adoption. And so that challenge happened and the adoption was overturned. And my moms, who still wanted to be my moms, my parents, after the adoption was overturned, appealed that decision. And they appealed that decision actually all the way up to the Supreme Court before it was knocked down to the lower courts who decided upon a joint custody agreement between my birth family and my adopted family. So it was really at that point that I began to understand that I was going to be in the lives of both my birth and adoptive families, but I was growing up with my two moms and I would go and I would see my birth family every few weeks or so. And so I had this experience that a lot of adoptees have of really existing in sometimes what we call this space in between of dueling loyalty. Should I be loyal to my adoptive family, to my birth family, to both? If I'm loyal to both, how is, how is that making them both feel? Am I feeling guilty in doing that? And I was also interacting with my birth sister a bit who did not grow up with me, who grew up with my grandmother. And so there were feelings of, of guilt there as well. And so leaving behind my quote sibling, my sibling who's older than me, but who I still felt responsible for making sure that she had all of the same resources in life that, that I had. And, and in some ways she did, in other ways she did not. And so that was also something that I was thinking about growing up. But even still, even with all of those things, this adoption profession that I'm in now wasn't something that I was growing up envisioning that I would be doing. I honestly, back then, uh, there were very, very few of us doing work like this as our full-time jobs, as, as trainers and in that way, as researchers. And so I really, I had no idea what I wanted to do as far as my profession was concerned. When I was younger, I knew that I liked soccer a lot and I wanted to make that, um, trying to be a professional soccer player part of, of my journey. When I realized that that wasn't quite in the cards and uh, in college, I, I began to think about being a lawyer and I took the LSATs and, and began to think about doing different things. It wasn't really until 2012, 2013, and I, I was searching my mom's house at the time, and I, well, I was cleaning the house, and then I remember finding um, a book, uh, a journal, rather. And the journal was a journal that was written by my mother Mary, my adoptive mother Mary, who had passed away of cancer when I was an adolescent. And I was reading 
what she was journaling and she was journaling about her first cancer treatments at the time. And I just felt this wealth of emotions in reading that. And I said, you know, I feel like writing something now. Mm. And so I went and I wrote and I don't even remember exactly what I wrote, but I just remember <laughs> writing a paragraph and then paragraph became pages. And then before I knew it, I had a hundred pages and I began seriously thinking about writing and finishing this book. I didn't have a, a title for it at that time. It was just something that I was writing. And I put out the book in 2016, around this time. And I, after that, um, I really began thinking about, you know, what does it mean for me to continuing not only to write, but to also give some advice to the adoption um, adoptive kinship network community in that way. And so that's kind of how I fell into being a training specialist, being a trainer on, on some of this stuff. But I always say that as adoptees, you know, we are the experts on our own journeys. You don't have to be uh, like me and someone who's, and I'm now doing my PhD in this research as well. Awesome. You don't have to do your PhD, your master's, to, to be considered an expert in this. It's really about having a lived experience and then also reflecting on that lived experience that makes you an expert. Yeah, no, and, and, and that, I mean, wow, that, that's, I'm imagining the, the, the richness and the complexity and the, the hard parts and also the distinct, um, I don't know, it's like skills that you had to develop to navigate all of those things that you've um, laid out so well right there in terms of the, the mixed feelings and the space in between and guilt and um, and so so common to, to what, you know, as I listen to adoptees talk about um, experiencing and yet there are some, like, what... what what do you think were the distinct parts? If you were a, a same-sex headed household, was considering adoption or ha has embarked on the path of adoption, and you're wondering what might some of the distinct joys and challenges be of that kind of family formation in the world of adoption, what comes to mind for you, for folks that are considering or actively in it? That's a great question. For LGBTQA parents who, or prospective parents who are considering adopting, fostering, one of the things that I would say is that a lot of times it's more, you're more likely to adopt interracially than members of the general population. We know that LGBTQA parents are six times more likely to adopt and they're also much more likely to adopt interracially. So, well, what does that mean? It means, well, some of these challenges that come with being a same-sex headed family, being an LGBTQ headed family, are also intertwined with some of the challenges common to interracial adoptive families too. There's intersectionality in those experiences. I would say to those families, you know, we talk all the time about the importance of what we call racial mirrors and instilling pride in your child's uh, in their racial groups and what it means to make sure that you are living in a diverse space if you can, making sure that if you're not living in a diverse space that your child is going perhaps to a diverse school or if they're not going to a diverse school that they have a teacher that is representative of a member of their racial group, if they're going to a church or to 
a hair salon that is representative in that way of helping them understand all of who they are. And what I tell LGBTQ parents as well is that it's important to instill pride, not only in, in that racial component, but also from the sexual identity piece, what that means too. So yes, it's important to talk not only about Martin Luther King, but James Baldwin and Sojourner Truth when we're talking about what racial mirrors mean. If you're a gay parent, for example, it's also important to talk about Harvey Milk. It's also important to talk about James Baldwin, who was a black man and is famous, this phenomenal writer, but he also happens to be a black gay man who was a black gay man during the 60s and the 50s and the 70s and had to, to endure all of what that encompassed too. And it's also about being prepared as a family to to enjoy to endure some of the common challenges that come with being an LGBTQ headed family. There were times when there was prejudice that, that I faced, that my mom's faced growing up, specifically as it related to my parents being two lesbian women and two lesbian women that decided to adopt a black child. And I've spoken about this before, but there are because as, as someone who's black, for example, I belong to a racial group where a large number, a uh, large percentage of the members of my racial group happen to be religious and specifically within that happen to be Christian. And, and what does that mean? Well, it means that a lot of people, a lot of black people grew up going to church, grew up in the church. And well, what does that mean? Well, that means that if they were growing up in church environments that talked about homosexuality being a sin, they talked about my moms being people who shouldn't be forming a family structure, that I'm going to be interacting, if we're talking about racial mirrors, with even if it's not necessarily the children who feel that way, the parents of those children who I'm interacting with might feel that way. And of course, that's not just specific to my racial group, right? We have people from all walks of life who, who have that mindset that this is, this is quote, a sin. Raising, raising a child in a gay-headed household is a sin. Being gay yourself is a sin, something that I don't believe. But that is something that your children at some point in their lives are going to hear said about them uh, to their face by someone else. And I think what happens is because we exist in a more progressive space than we were in around sexual identity 30 or 40 years ago, parents think that, well, if I live in a diverse area and I haven't had problems with this, I'm out as an individual. My partner and I have been out, we'll be fine. And what happens is they figure out that, okay, we're, we're fine from the ages of zero to 10 with our child. But then when our child is a teenager, they're starting to hear things or they're starting to say things to, to us that's bringing us back to not only the interracial piece, if we're in an interracial family, but also a piece of the challenges that come with existing in an LGBTQA family too. The joys that, that I say, that I would talk about, I, I think that it's always a hard question for me to answer. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it's unfair because, you know, challenges is easy to answer, right? Joys is, is harder to answer almost because 
the joy piece for me puts me in the standpoint of where I'm comparing my life to what Tony's life would it would have been if he did not grow up in the family structure that he did. And so I can talk about, you know, the joys that it just I felt growing up with my moms, you know, going to the park, going on camping trips, having my moms be people that always fought for the rights of others and always talked to me about the importance of treating others the way that you wanted to be treated and really modeled that for me. And seeing them be individuals who were most concerned in life with being good people was really for me something that was impactful going forward and something that I tried uh, to do and to emulate in my life. We already know that when it comes to being raised in in a household of two moms, two dads, a single parent who is LGBTQ plus identifying, that we put our, you know, we tie our shoes just the same as everybody else. I argued with my moms growing up just like every other kid. You know, the, the difference for our families, though, is the outside world reminds us of our difference. And that goes along with being an interracial adoptee and being an adoptee with two moms. When we walk outside, now there's two white women and this little black boy. And that is jarring for people. And it's also something that makes people curious about what that is like, because they understand it to not be the, quote, normative family environment in that way. And so those are those are just some of the challenges that, that come along with that. And I think that for parents, it's important as far as advice is concerned for them to to come up with strategies around, you know, what do we do if someone says something problematic to you? Would you like us to step in? Would you like to say something yourself? And also checking in with them, you know, how how did that make you feel? Checking in with them just on a regular basis as it relates to when they get home from school, not asking them, did somebody say something homophobic to you today? You know, asking them, you know, how was your school day? How did you get along with your peers? How was that? Yeah. Making sure that, you know, you know that you are, are fine with all of who you are, but how does your family feel about what it means for, for you to be out? Talking to your kids about, well, my mom wasn't so accepting of me when I first came out. Now she is, and this is what we talked about. And taking, taking your child through some of those processes is really important for them to see. It's important for them to see that we are not individuals who are static. We are individuals who kind of move through this, this flexible nature of, of being and in happenstance and, and happenstance and ideology. And so doing some of those things is, is really going to be helpful for those families. Yeah, no, and I so, again, appreciate really what you've offered. A couple of quick things. I, and I really uh, thank you for, for um, naming the hard parts of the joy question. There are, there are too many spaces where focusing on the win-win-win of adoption kind of stuff gets played out. And, th- and, and I appreciate the spaces where you're saying... Um, that's a question that's hard because I can't compare given the losses that came with being raised in a different, a different family configuration. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I appreciate the part of like, the, it was layers because it, it sounds, it sounds to me exactly as you've said there, 
the layers to the reactions of the outside world because and and not not without good reason there are lots of folks within racial mirroring communities for black and brown adoptees who who understand the history of child welfare services responding more harshly to black and brown families like the this you can't remove interracial adoption from the backdrop of racism and systemic racism in our country so already you have black and brown communities um, that that may have hurt and anger uh, around interracial placements in general, and then within any, as you mentioned, racial group who who has been exposed to teaching um, that isn't, um, you know, doesn't have a full understanding of the scope and, and, and isn't fully affirming of LGBTQ plus folks based on their experience. Um, that, that's sort of a double whammy in terms of reaction, right? In a, sort of a, a moving around in the world. So for, for did that make it, was it challenging at times to find um, spaces with racial mirrors for your parents? I think sometimes I think when white parents are on this journey, speaking more broadly about interracial adoption, there's almost this thing where white parents expect a little bit of a cookie. I say in my other stuff, like don't, you know, don't I get a cookie? Like, like they want to be welcomed into black and brown communities. Like here, we're showing up here. Here's our kid. We get this important, like we should have a, you know, a parade. I'm overstating that. But, but sometimes there is this vibe where they're expecting full warmth and envelopment and high fives of some kind um, for, for being there and being in community. And, and I would imagine that this, that the, that the formation of your family, and I don't, you don't have to speak specifically to yours, but what you see in other families, what can you say to the white parents who want to re- repel or retreat from the sense that their family may be being judged twice around this issue if they're looking for racial mirrors for their kids? Great question. And the first thing that I would say is to put yourself in the shoes of your children your children who are a different race than you because a lot of times they're going to be going into situations where they're the only black person in the room. They're the only Latinx person in the room. And that is something that's difficult. It's an uncomfortable space to be in. That's what we are asking you to do sometimes when it comes to creating and maintaining racial mirrors for your kids in life because sometimes you as parents will have to go into spaces where you are the only in a room in order for your child to feel comfortable in said room. When I was growing up, one of my moms took me to a barbershop and the name of the barbershop was Ebony Barbers, literally the name. And only black people were in that particular barbershop. And my mom not only took me, but sat in the chair Uh, in the waiting chair the entire time while I was getting my hair cut. So she was not actively engaged in discussion with people there, but she was listening and observing. And after, I don't know, she was, uh, she had any trepidation about going into those places being the quote only in that space. But if she did, she never shared that with me. She never complained. And that is, those are the types of things that, that you'll need to do as parents to help your children Uh, understand that you are willing to not only talk to them about what it means to have racial pride, but that you yourself will be involved in the cultivation of that by existing in in their lives in that sense. And I also wanted to address a point you made earlier too, because 
it's a really good point that black and brown communities have trepidation about interracial adoption because of our racial history in this country. There were racist policies um, put forth that enabled black people to be separated from families in the first place, uh, from their families in the first place. And now today we still have policies that disproportionately affect black and brown communities when it comes to the foster care system and see them separated at larger rates. We know that black families are investigated by child protective services for the same offenses at two to three times the rate of other races of households. And so that means that they'll find themselves more likely to see their children separated from them. And then we have policies put in place that stipulate that, well, if it's been 18 months and your your child hasn't been granted full custody back to you, then you lose all parental rights in the United States. Your rights as a parent are now terminated. And it's going to be usually nearly impossible to get those rights back. And, And we also know that when it comes to interracial adoption, that up until very recently, there were colorblind approaches that we, we, a lot of people thought were best practice when it came to interracial adoption. So you had kids growing up in, uh, black kids growing up in Nebraska and in DC and whatever areas they were growing up in without racial mirrors, without having discussions surrounding race. And this made it very difficult for them moving forward in life. What I also try to tell parents though, is that yes, what you do is important, but Again, it's really about creating the environment to allow kids to have agency and to do some of these things self moving forward. And that means that you're creating opportunities where it's not going to feel non um, natural for them to go to the park and to see people who look like them. Something that was very helpful for me as I was growing up was to interact with peers in my neighborhood who, who were black, who happened to like the same sports that I did. So we played the same sports as as one another. But if I was growing up in an environment where my peers were not black and I was playing different sports with peers who were a different race than my own, I wouldn't have been able to experience what that meant. And what that meant was they talked to me about the importance of hair care, about which lotions were good for, for our type of skin about what music their parents listened to when they were growing up. This is all information that I didn't really get growing up. And so those things are very helpful, but it's really important for parents to be intentional about creating those spaces. And parents also need to acknowledge not only that racial mirrors are important, but that discrimination exists. And these are the ways that discrimination has been combated in the past. And these are the ways that it if it rears its head in our lives, that we will do it too. So, yeah, those are some other things. No, and I, yeah, I talk a lot and I echo what you're saying too about, you know, frank conversations, naming it for kids at different levels, and then on a day to day basis, you know, why do these coffee and conversations? And the um, current events gives us endless opportunities around the dinner table and other places to say, what did you hear? What are you thinking? Um, do you have questions? Is there something you think you shouldn't say to me? Because then let's talk about it. You know, like like just setting that 
introducing, interweaving conversations around race. Um, and then also, you know, right, the heteronormative stuff that's just everywhere that can help kids being raised in LGBTQIA families start start to see when they're going to experience that discrimination as being connected to LGBTQIA families as well, like to challenge the assumptions that we make around, you know, white normative things and heteronormative things and just um, begin to introduce those into conversations and, and having really direct ones with kids about like, do you want me to say like, you know, signals, squeeze my hand if you want me to say something, you know, or I'm going to look at you and if you want to talk, you talk first. If not, then I will. Um, and, and also, you know, having not being afraid of the do over, like not being afraid of tucking in at night that night and saying, I don't feel right. I'm thinking back to that supermarket scene and I wish I had or what do you think I could do next time or, you know, that that kind of thing also that that we get there. Unfortunately, there will be endless opportunities to continue to learn to interface with other people's biases. <laughs> right. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you remember going through a phase like for parents who, you know, I've, I've taught to other um, uh, parents who sometimes, you know, same gender loving families who who've just sort of said, you know, sometimes we wonder if we've put too much. Like sometimes we wonder if we put too much on our, our kid. Like our child wants nothing more than to just, quote, be, be normal. And I'm putting that in the air quotes, right? And yet, and we've stacked their cards in such a way that, that we don't know if it was the right thing to do. And, and we know that, that our child wishes we were different in a couple of key ways. And it's hard to parent from that place. What are your thoughts about, I know that's big, but what are your thoughts about those right. sentiments? It is big, and it's a great question and topic to bring up. And the first thing that I would say to parents is your children are normal. Your families are normal, but your families are going to get questions about what it means to be members of your family, regardless of whether you talk to your kids about what it means to be an interracial or same-sex-headed household um, yourselves. They're going to get questions about that. And if they're going to get questions about that, then it's important to understand, okay, what are those questions likely to be from others based on the experiences of people like me who are sharing and, and other adoptees, other adoptive parents who are sharing? And also, how did kids feel when they got asked those questions? How did we feel as parents when people said things to us? What were some of those conversations like after that? And when it comes to the hammering home, I hear parents say that sometimes too. It's okay, well, I get I get that, Tony, but what is the right amount to give my child in relation to talking about racial mirrors and racism and homophobia? I don't wanna to talk to them about it every single day because that's just going to replicate the difference that they're already feeling and maybe make them paranoid that things are always going to go wrong for them in life. And to that I say, it's all about balance. Of course, we don't want to talk about these things literally every single day of the week, but we don't want to go a whole year without discussing these things or even six months in a lot of instances either without discussing these things. So you know your kids much better than I do, right? Than anyone else does. You know what is likely to, to feel 
overwhelming to them. Not it, not as it relates to to race specifically, because maybe you haven't had those conversations. But you know that if you're doing math homework with them and you continue to hammer them and hammer them on a specific problem, you know the level in which they are likely to just shut down and say, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. Well, you need to also figure out what's the barometer then what that you're setting with these particular conversations moving forward. And also what are you comfortable discussing? A lot of parents are not comfortable discussing race. A lot of parents are not comfortable discussing sexuality. So these are questions that you need to ask yourselves. You know, what what is my comfort level discussing these things? Because sometimes I also hear from parents, well, I don't want to discuss racial things with my child because I'm a white parent and I could never live and breathe in the shoes of my children. So I just feel better about passing the buck on that conversation onto a racial mirror that that I have befriended a, a black person, a brown person in my life that's a friend of mine and they can talk they can talk with them about this stuff. And I always say, okay, good that those other people can also have this conversation, but you are the parent at the end of the day. You need to be having these discussions with them. And, and what do those conversations really look like in practice? Well, like you said, a lot of times there are going to be things related to current events that come up that lend themselves naturally to conversations. So especially if your kid is, is older, if your kid is 13, 14 years old, today the Supreme Court is debating the, the merits of, of abortion in, in Mississippi. And so that's an opportunity for, for families to discuss this extremely um, hairy topic of, of abortion. But there are things like that that exist for, for racialized issues. We just had the Amar, Ahmaud Arbery um, decision, decision that was made in the, the trial of the three murderers that they killed him. And so that's another opportunity to discuss race in the United States. There, if you're reading up, you know, there's opportunities for you to bring some of this stuff up yourself. Matthew Shepard was a gay man who was killed in 1997 in Wyoming. He was killed just for being gay. He, he was tortured when he was being killed. And so you wouldn't necessarily want to tell a four or five year old that this man was tortured. But you might to a four or five year old say, hey, this is around this time of year, a man was treated very unfairly and he lost his life because because he was treated unfairly. And now as a result of that, there's a whole community of folks who do things every year in his honor or do things related to making sure that the rights of all peoples are, are recognized. And that's something that we preach in this family too. Sometimes by using euphemisms, it really allows your children to come to these natural conclusions themselves that, well, I shouldn't be mistreated because I'm black. Because if everyone should treat everyone how they needed to be treated, then we shouldn't be treating people differently on the basis of their race or their sexuality or their gender. And doing, doing it that way is really a way to not, quote, hammer, hammer, hammer all the time specific things related to race or gender or sexuality, they're still going to help your kids get that message. At the same time though, again, in finding that balance, sometimes you do wanna be very specific about delivering messages about how important it is as parents to, uh, 
to to protect your kids from a racial discriminatory place, from to protect yourselves from a sexual identity discriminatory place as well. So these are things that that I talk about with families and and hopefully again, like you said, you're not going to do everything perfectly, and it's about having grace for yourself and understanding that okay. I didn't say this the exact way I would. I might have meant to say it today, but I'll come back to that next week or, or in a month and I'll have another opportunity to do this with my child. And, and what we say all the time is some of these really heavy conversations are really just 60 second blips sometimes because when you're talking to kids, their attention spans, they're not gonna have conversations like this for an hour. You know, it's going to be when you're going home from a soccer game, they might say something. Right. And you might hold it in the air for, for just a few seconds there. And you might make one remark. and But that one remark is really going to impact them in a positive way. And if you weren't able to formulate the one remark you were looking for, that's okay. Because you can be intentional about introducing that again, moving forward. And your, your kids, a lot of times they they will sometimes feel like mom, dad, too much of this. I don't want to talk about this adoption stuff. I don't want to talk about this race stuff. I don't want to talk about this same sex LGBTQA headed family stuff anymore. I just want to play with my friends and, and do this and do that. But what happens as they grow up, as they get to the age that I am now, is they begin to comprehend that those types of conversations really helped ground them and really helped them understand that they were going to be, maybe not right now, but later, they were going to explore these different pieces of their identities. Because what happens when those conversations aren't had or when they're not emphasized is kids will turn into adolescents to turn into adults, wondering, you know, who am I exactly? What does my experience mean to me? Because they haven't really been given the space to say, you can reflect on what it means to be an interracial adoptee with two lesbian moms. You can have that space. And so telling them that it's okay to do that, to feel grief as well, right, for their birth parents and not being able to be raised by their birth families. Expressing the love that you have for not only them, but for their birth parents, knowing for them that they can love two sets of different families are all things that you don't have to quote hammer, but you should emphasize right. in getting that across. And, and maybe, in, in, and to the, you know, with an potentially, possibly, some for some families, there may be an added layer of parents having to sort through what they perceive as a reaction to their same gender loving home, right? So like, am I, I need to show up and, and, and figure out how to make available to my uh, child, people in community to, you know, the, who, who may be working through <laughs> views about me and my identity that, that don't align perfectly with mine yet. And so I imagine that's a balancing act at times but but also we're the grown-ups, right? In terms of like, we, we did sign up for this. We did, um, uh, you know, invite this formation. And so there may be layers of, of a lot of having to confront elements of um, 
of homophobia that, that, as you said, may not have been in some of the bubbles that are protective and that create get created by folks who are in protected identity classes, who need their communities, who need the buffer, who've established safe spaces that that um, that I think it really takes a, a broader understanding that your child is going to need you to do your work, imperfect as it may be, uh, <laughs> so that they're not the ones trying to sort through all that and carry the baggage. Or so that I think what happens, I see a lot with adoptive parents, is that of all uh, orientations of gender and sexuality is when it's uncomfortable, then there's distance. So we say we tried and then we retreat a little bit because we perceived this judgment of our family for a variety of reasons or questions about our parenting strategies, our race, our ability to raise, you know, healthy, healthy kids of color which are all great questions to be asked and and they're hard. And so this is sort of another um, plug from me and I'm assuming from what I'm hearing and what you're saying too, for parents to recognize the discomfort and breathe into it um, and find the language to describe it for, for your kids while you keep, or help your kids just find their own language while you keep showing up because that your child is going to have to, to be able to navigate those intersecting um, family identities and go through periods of shame where they shame and, and or or rejection of either their own race, their parents' race, their parents' sexual orientation. Like, I, is that part of the journey? Would you say for folks? Oh, for sure, for sure. You know, there's feelings of not being authentic and not being an authentic enough black person, or, or not being an authentic enough heterosexual person for those uh, adoptees or who are heterosexual that grow up in, uh, as you said, same gender loving families. There's questions around that. And these are all things that kids usually are not comfortable sharing with our parents. We're not comfortable sharing, you know, hey mom, I don't, I don't feel authentically black sometimes because I don't have this innate knowledge or it seems like innate knowledge that my peers have and it seems like I don't quote belong in the same ways that peers of mine who are hanging out with other black people belong it feels like when I'm hearing homophobic jokes at school that I'm uncomfortable with I don't know what to say when a kid says that's so gay because I want them to be friends with me but I also don't want to disrespect my family or my own views by staying silent and not saying anything. And at the same time, am I being too sensitive around these things? If my sexuality is being questioned by someone, is it being questioned in general? Is it being questioned because I have two moms or two dads? Because a lot of times what happens is, or one mom, one dad obviously too, what happens is, people think that because you were raised by someone who's gay, who's lesbian, who's trans, who's non-gender binary, that you are more likely to be not only open, but you are more likely to identify as a sexual identity minority in that way. And, and so that's another piece of being raised in an LGBTQ household that is often not discussed with families it's this idea that families will just be able to go through the motions in those senses, but the interracial the racial stuff is the stuff that matters the most. 
And I get asked all the time, you know, what what would you define as being more impactful mm-hmm. to to your experience, the interracial piece or the LGBTQ piece of it all? And I always say I can't I can't answer that either way because both of them are so intertwined with with each other. And it's impossible for me to come up with, well, this piece is more impactful than that piece. I will say that as far as my identity is concerned, being a black person, being a black person in the United States where I'm from is something that for me as an identity marker takes space even over being an adoptee. An adoptee would probably be second for me. And and so, so I understand that piece of myself, but in relation to being raised in a certain household, which piece of that was more impactful? Both of them were, were very impactful. And it also depends upon where we are as a society, I've noticed, in terms of the questions that I will get asked about my experience. In 2012 and 2013, when same-sex was being legalized in more and more states, and we were moving towards same-sex marriage being legalized in all of the United States, that piece of my identity was a question that I got asked about way more often than I do today. Now, the questions that I get asked are usually about, well, what was it like being a black man who grew up in a white-headed household? And so you're kind of being forced to choose for us interracial adoptees from uh, LGBTQ plus households, choose to decide what voice we would like to speak from in that way too. And that's something that I hope people realize it needs to be approached with more nuance and balance when we think about that discussion. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this conversation today, Tony. I mean, there's, there's lots more to be said uh, about all of this in terms of, um, I think it's just, you know, being in, being raised in conspicuous families, right? So you're doubly conspicuous in this regard in terms of, um, it's just sort of, begs for, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, one sort of an understanding of complexity and not feeling like, like ideally not having parents or clinicians or anybody else put you in a position where you're needing to choose, recognizing that you will have um, struggles and periods of time that that's a natural part of identity, but that parents don't add to that in any way, <laughs> that they're looking for spaces that will affirm all aspects of your family's identity and your identity as well, that you're having conversations early and that you are preparing your kids for um, what to say. They're going to be asked to defend your family. Assumptions are going to be made about your children's sexual orientations and gender. Um, whether or not women can raise a man or whether men are safe and can raise a woman, right? Like, what does that actually mean? So these questions are going to come at your children. Um, and so finding support, what are, what are some final thoughts you have about resources for parents on this particular journey? Where can they hear more from you? And what are some other resources that you recommend? Well, for me, they can learn more about what I do through the work I do with CASE, the Center of Adoption Support and Education. Uh, through my, you can email me, email is hines at adoptionsupport.org. And I have a bunch of different trainings that I give on specific topics related to interracial adoption, same-sex headed adoption, grief and loss, 
importance of birth family connection, stuff around holidays and, and that. And so that's, that's one place, but I, I always say that go to the voices of adoptees first and foremost. Those should be your go-to voices. So if you have an Instagram, just type in adoption, type in adoptee. There will be lots of popular Instagram adoptee pages for you to follow. One is um, adoptee underscore thoughts, Melissa Richards, who just wrote a book on what it was like for her growing up as an international late discovery adoptee. And it's also really just this lush resource of research too on interracial adoption. Isaac Edder is someone else who you can follow. And so there's, uh, there's so many different, um, Hannah Jackson Matthews is someone else who you can follow. Nicole Chung has written a New York Times bestseller on her adoptive experience and speaks on the topic a lot herself. Adoptees really, especially those of us who are now in 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, who have had time to reflect on our experience, are really going to give you a sense of how they were feeling when those questions were asked at a time when they can now fully articulate some of those feelings that they maybe weren't fully able to articulate to you back then. And so they're kind of giving you a preview sometimes of what your kids might be going through moving forward. I would also say finding other adoptees for them to interact with is also vital. You know, there's, it's great to have racial mirrors, it is, but there are things that my black peers are, are just not going to understand when it comes to being a black interracial adoptee that black interracial adoptees will understand when it comes to my experience. Yeah. And it feels really good and affirming when we're able to interact with our peers from those spaces. Some one space that I know you're aware of, Laura, that you can do this in is at PACT Camp, which is a camp for uh, families that are interracial adoptive families. And there are, there are also even workshops and, and groups out there. So find affinity, find support groups in that way too. And just, I always tell parents, if you really want to make true and honest connections, do it through thinking about your own passions. There was one white adoptive parent who was really interested in reading. So he joined a book club on black authors. And that particular book club had mostly black people in it. And he decided to invite the members of his book club over for Christmas dinner that year. And so when I walked into his household that year, he was actually the only, besides his wife, the only white person in that space. And his children who were black were able to be in community, but it also felt very organic because he wasn't stretching himself in that way. Find areas that you, are your passions and move into those areas. If you like music, make sure to talk about musicians that you like who happen to be musicians of the same race or, or happen to be um, LGBTQA identifying as well that you may listen to and, and talk to your kids in that way. And there's obviously a lot more to say, but yeah. you know, <laughs> well, I'll be back at another. And I love what you're doing. I mean, yeah, case pack. These are they they do just great work. It, I can't invite folks enough. And I always say too, if you're a clinician, too many clinicians say they work with adoptive families when they do not understand 
all of these intersections. We're talking today about a racial identity piece, an adoptive identity piece, uh, a family and protected identity piece that that we really need clinicians to understand that, you know, you know, love isn't enough for families either. And they've got to be preparing parents to prepare kids. We've got to be preparing clinicians to be able to hold all of the complexities that adoptees bring into an office if they're needing therapeutic support and not try to tie a neat bow on the complexity of the loss and the guilt and the the things that you so nicely laid out. So um, Case does a lot of great stuff for clinicians and parents alike, as does as does PACT. And so, yes, thank you very much, Tony, for joining today. And I look forward to having you back around again. And I really am so grateful to, to learn and listen. Thank you for taking time to share uh, with me today. Thank you so much as well, Laura. And Case, uh, to your point about Step for clinicians, yeah. our TAC training program is specifically designed for clinicians to help them be adoption competent uh, mental health professionals. And I also am a co-trainer on on that particular program. And it's it's really just been great to see clinicians, like you said, who've worked with adoptive families really dive deeply into some things that they haven't had the opportunity to dive deeply into when it comes to being adoption competent. What was the name? Parents. You said TAC. Can you say that? It's, it's called, yes, it's called TAC and it's spelled T-A-C. Um, you can find the program on CASE's website okay. and we have different cohorts for different states. So it doesn't matter really what state. We also have uh, just, this is completely virtual. So it can be accessed anywhere in the nation. And we also have our NTI program, which is a, a free training resource for, for clinicians, parents, anyone who wants to learn just all there is to, to know about um, adoption too. And, and that's another thing though, it's a, a great example to give of find a therapist. They don't have to be a, a case therapist, but find an adoption competent mental health therapist for for your kids and, and for yourself um that is going to be a vital resource moving forward for you as well yeah no big big plug for that as well because that's it's just fundamental so many people think there are layers of people who think they understand so much about adoption and and we see so many well-intended but misses um in this kinship network collective and term and I learn I misstep and learn every day so thank you for being uh parts of that and I look forward to our paths crossing again me too thanks thanks so much for having me Well, thanks for listening today. Just a quick note here at the end to say I am so glad you joined, and I hope you are too. And if you'd like to connect with me more, come take a look at my website, www.drlauraanderson.com. There you can join my newsletter, keep in touch, and find out what is in the works. You can also join me for coffee and conversation uh, on Facebook at Common Cord Psychology Services. So check me out those places and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today.